anybody that's ever experienced any sort of really intense trauma will tell you they can remember the smell, they can remember what color the sky was, they can remember um, details about it that sometimes seem like too exaggerated to hear them talk about it. Uh, but we don't remember the birthday party we were just at. No. We have a tendency to, to forget the good and uh, the sickness to vividly remember the bad. Ed Calderon's attention to detail is a blessing and a curse. It served him well during his operational years working law enforcement down in Mexico. But there are some things he would rather forget. His vivid recollections of the past and his openness in sharing them with others have helped shape this next phase of his career. These anecdotes, which Ed calls his fever dreams, were merely private thoughts until he became friends with some United States Marines. Ed credits those friends and some others he made at Naval Special Warfare, or NSW, with saving his life in more ways than one. As we mentioned in the previous episode, bear with us because Ed's audio might sound a little different. We picked up some kind of echo in our final conversation, but you won't even notice it once he starts talking. So when I write some of these things down, and you're seeing some of those details that I put in there that seem like I'm talking about something that just happened, that's why some of those things are so descriptive. Uh, because some of these moments are just tattooed in my head. The audio of some of these events and the smells are, are just uh, kind of uh, infused into it. After I left the job, some of the people that helped me through my whole process of uh, uh, seeking out my American uh, dream, uh, all of them were prior service members. Um, and all of them had words to the problems that I had that I didn't know. So they were pretty instrumental in guiding me through the process of figuring out what, I, what problems I had putting a name to these problems and looking for ways of helping me out with these problems. I was shrouding in them. And uh, uh, basically they uh, reached out and took me to some of those therapy circles, uh, introduced me to people that had similar experience than I had. And, and them being part of a culture like uh, the American culture where these things have been cataloged, named, and there is a support ne network for veterans. It is completely alien to my Mexican mind. None of that is none of that was available and is available to people like me uh, down in Mexico. From figuring out some of my physical problems uh, to figuring out that uh, some of my anxiety attacks and issues that I have were not purely mental, but it wasn't all in my head, as they say. And to, to kind of get being really honest, brutally honest about some of the ways that I've uh, kind of avoided dealing with some of these issues uh, by, you know, out using alcohol, <laughs> uh, by uh, isolating myself uh, for days on end every now and then, uh, or, or by just, you know, running from my problems, which uh, to this day I still struggle with because I'm, I'm always on the move, and uh, a lot of that, uh, a lot of that motion and movement is usually kind of related to me trying to 
keep myself busy so I don't have to deal with them. So that's that's that was kind of the inception of, of, of trying to figure these things out. You know, that whole admitting you have something that's wrong with you is there's a there's a stigma to that in New Mexico. You know, if if you ask for help and you want to go to a therapist, you're crazy. It's a black and white issue. Uh, or you're weak. Or there's something wrong with you. Or you're broke. Uh, and it's like a public admission of that. And there's a cultural stigma to it. And uh, even even within family, I had family members that saw my struggle and that saw some of my issues and they would tell me that I was a traumatizer, crazy, that I had something wrong with me. Uh, it affected some of my you know, personal life. Uh, it ended a relationship that I had for years. Uh, it, uh, it uh, took away a lot of the people that I had in my, in my life. Uh, uh, so when I, when it came to a point where I had to share some of this stuff openly with people, you know, I, I was, I was worried. Uh, I was worried about uh, the judgment that was going to be placed on me. I was worried about uh, what I was going to lose, what, what more I was going to lose if I started being honest and open. Ed was lucky to find such a strong circle to assist with his recovery in the U.S. because that certainly wasn't the case in Mexico. In his days on the job, he may not have had the words for what he was going through, but looking back, he says he can pinpoint the moment his collective experiences became too much to bear. I, I didn't have words for it uh, when I when I kind of went through it. It was one of those things where you remember back to it, and you can kind of trace the problem once you know what it is uh, to uh, an origin point. Um, I just got uh, reassigned uh, to a more, uh, more managerial position, uh, which was basically life-saving. Uh, and uh, you know, I was going through separation as far as, you know, when you change offices, uh, or when you get uh, reassigned, uh, all communication kind of really goes down, uh, down the drain. The jobs we were doing and the work we were doing were—it was—it was pretty delicate. So not a lot of communication would come out of those groups uh, to the outside. So I was sitting in this hotel room after I got reassigned, uh, kind of going through some paperwork, trying to figure out uh, what what dressing casual means. That the job it doesn't come with a manual, so I'm trying to figure out my new reality uh, and uh, turn on the news and. I recognize the house that's in the news. Uh, I see all the flashing lights. That I see the uh, criminal scene investigation van there. So I knew there were dead people there. And um, I recognize uh, I recognize the truck that I used to drive, and I recognize another of the cars there. So I start kind of piecing together. It's like watching something on water where you can't really hear what you're what you're looking at. Um, and I can feel this uh, you know, just force on my chest when I start recognizing some of the people there. Uh, I start figuring out that uh, these people were where I would have been if uh, if I wasn't reassigned. Uh, 
I was relieved in a way, which really was probably the most uh, horrible thing that I could feel. I mean, at least to myself. Like, to still this day, I struggle with that feeling. Um, that it wasn't me in, in one regard, but on the other hand, uh, other part of my uh, irrational uh, mind uh, wanted to grab everything I could from the hotel and, and, and drive over there as quickly as I could to try and see if I could help out somehow. Uh, when I uh, picked up the phone to call some of the guys that I used to work with, uh, the numbers had been changed. I was out. I was locked out. I couldn't even reach out to some of the people that I, that I used to work with uh, at that moment. I felt like I was adrift. Um, like being on one of those lifeboats alone that uh, came off the Titanic, seeing that boat uh, sink into the ocean and not being able to do anything. Um, the, the young faces uh, of the people on the ground, and then later on when I, uh, when I actually got to go to some of the funerary services of some of these guys, uh, seeing their young girlfriends, uh, or in one case, the uh, young wife, crying over the, uh, the fetid from the uh, casket and uh, kind of seeing some of the guys there and going over and hearing them talk about what they were going to do or how they were going to find the people that did it and just being on the outside of it. I'm not part of any of that. I was jealous and desperate to be part of the retribution, which is kind of, another thing that's kind of uh, sick about it. Um, but I was out, and uh, it, it was one of the first times that I started feeling that hole that you get kind of in the center of your body, that uh, like something's missing. Um, and uh, you know, survival guilt was probably the best way to call that hole. I had to stop everything I was doing, basically. I don't know if anybody out there listening to this has ever experienced uh, something like it, where there's something happening, you can't do anything about it, but your whole body and being just wants to wants to react, wants to wants to go somewhere, figure something out. I, I just, there's nothing I could do. I remember putting on my uh, sneakers without any socks on, grabbing money off the counter, and uh, stuffing my Glock uh, 17 into my waistline without a holster, Mexican carry style, because what? Well, because of course, you know. Uh, and uh, going over to a uh, liquor store that was uh, by the hotel and looking through the selection of beer and alcohol there and uh, reaching over and grabbing a bottle of Jose Cuervo because why not, you know? Uh, so, uh, you know, I drank myself to sleep that, uh, that night. Um, didn't call anybody. Uh, didn't call anybody. I just kind of soaked it. I think that was probably a mistake. Uh, but I felt like nobody could understand what I was going through. And maybe reaching out to my mother would have been bad because she would always worry about me. And I, 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 I rarely shared any of this with her uh, when I was in because I knew she, she kept her up and she, she didn't like the job that I was doing. So. Um, 
Yeah, that, uh, that, uh, that night, uh, probably somewhere around three in the morning, uh, finally passed out. Uh, woke up that same morning, probably at 7.30, got dressed, uh, went to work, uh, did a briefing on the better security protocols and uh, how to buy armored vehicles uh, for visiting dignitaries and basically put on this false face and persona of normalcy and if anybody has ever had to do that for a long period of time you realize it's like a tensing a muscle uh, and I started basically tensing that muscle that force the normalcy that I, that, that I had to put on and that, that's probably the start of that as well I haven't stopped I think The murder of Ed's replacements, after he had just left for his new job, was a proverbial straw that broke his back. But the tragedies that led to the breakdown he had that night began long before. Ed lost more colleagues on the job than he cares to count. But one of the most profound deaths he experienced involved a friend he knew since they were children. There's a kid that I knew both same age. Uh, he went this different route than I did. Uh, our families knew each other. Uh, our families uh, were, were friends. Uh, kind of grew up together. Went to the same schools. Uh, he's a redhead, you know, a, a white redhead Mexican. He kind of looked like Canelo, the Mexican monster. Uh, he's a good kid. But he would always watch out for everybody. He was uh, very responsible. You know, kind of a mama's boy. A big boy scout kind of, kind of guy. Um, lost track of him after we uh, left high school. And uh, destiny put us uh, in the same place at the same time. Uh, when I was working at this gas station, there were about two or three Suburbans parked. Uh, a bunch of armed people uh, standing around. Uh, AK-47s, that type of that type of thing, wearing chest rings. Um, they were somebody reported them, and uh, at this time we were working with the uh, with the Mexican army uh, as uh, basically guides uh, to, to to certain parts of the city that we would know. We wanted to see and verify if they weren't uh, police officers, so uh, I volunteered to do a walk by, basically. I took everything I uh, had off and I was wearing civilian clothes, uh, stuff, uh, radio in my pocket. And uh, I just decided to do a walk by and, and, and to, to try and get, get a better idea of who these people were. Uh, this is before drone technology or anything like that. Uh, as I'm walking by, one of the guys uh, in the middle of this group of armed people whistles at me and calls me out by name. which makes my stomach drop all the way to my feet. Turned around, looked at him, and it's this redhead kid coming over. Bigger now. Uh, looks like he'd probably been going to the gym. I can see his freckles hadn't changed. Uh, he walks over, gives me this big hug, you know? Like, hey man, how have you been doing? Like, uh, like uh, five. It's awesome, like, uh, what have you been doing? It's like, ah, oh, just, uh, you know, unemployed, looking for a job. 
Uh, he's like kind of smiles and, and, and he's wearing a he's wearing a bandolier with AK forty seven magazines on him, and he's holding like a a Draco uh, AK. It's basically a small compact AK in one of his hands. Um, and he says, "Well, you know, I know people that get you a good job." And I'm kind of like curiously talking, talking just small banter back and forth about uh, about the money he's making and about how good he has it, uh, how it would. So when you have no option, when you have no options, you know that well, there's no better option. Basically, is what he told me. Somebody said something to him, and he got called back, like they were leaving. Before he left, he uh, leaned over. And then my ear told me, I know what you do, like a workout, good workout around. But you work where you work. Uh, be careful, this is not a safe place for you to be in right now. And I said, I know. We shook hands and he left back to his uh, group and I did the fastest, longest walk that I have ever done in my life back to the waiting, uh, waiting vehicles that we had staged uh, around the corner. By the time that I got to the, to the vehicles, uh, the uh, the army had already moved in on. I could hear the firefight uh, going on as I arrived at the stage. The complete had the sound of G, uh, HMK G, uh, G3 rifles shooting and full auto uh, rifle fire on this gas station, which by a miracle didn't hit anything that, that caught fire. When we got there, it was over. A lot of people died. When you arrive to a scene like that, you start uh, taking away or gathering rifles and firearms into a single uh, into a single space to secure them, and so nobody grabs one. Nobody gets shot, basically. So start doing that. Start gathering IDs, and I I I. I I couldn't see my friend, uh, so I felt kind of like maybe he escaped, you know, maybe he left before this happened. And uh, underneath the car, like he tried to try to drag himself underneath the car. I could see his, uh, you know, I saw his right hair kind of sticking out. Um, I stayed with his body all the way through the whole process between them gathering it up. Uh, bagging it up and uh, taking it to the uh, forensic services. And I called his parents. Um, I think that's that call, which to this day, <laughs> I can't remember. But yeah, underwater, being underwater, that's, that's what I felt. But I, I do remember the, uh, the howling, the pure just uh, grief and desperation on the other uh, on the other side of the phone of his mom. I, I remember them coming in to recognize the uh, body, and I remember the look of hate, uh, blame that was casted my way by the father. Who, uh, only a few years back, uh, had, uh, 
and handed me a handed me one of my first uh, beers, a barbecue. Um, I think that was a, that was a, that one of the uh, the first the worst moments that I had. We're going to hold that thought and come back after this brief mention from our sponsor. Listen to the all-new Brett Bear podcast featuring Common Ground, in-depth talks with lawmakers from opposite sides of the aisle, along with all your Brett Bear favorites like his all-star panel and much more. Available now at foxnewspodcasts.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Ed says his decision to share some of his life experiences with a wider audience began as a counterpoint to what he saw as a destructive mindset among some online veteran personalities. Instead of presenting himself as invincible, Ed said he wanted to make his damage clear with his fever dreams. This is the first one he ever shared. And if you're not a fan of gore, be warned, because when Ed puts pen to paper, rivers of blood follow. During the, the really bad, bad parts of the, uh, probably 2008 era, there were two cars I was fighting for control in Tijuana, a uh, bunch of shootings almost every night. We would get eight, seven people killed, kind of the same way it is now. <laughs> um, we got a report of a house that's, that was uh, completely uh, shot up with some sort of a house party going on early morning hours. Uh, when we got there, there's nobody there as far as the uh, cartel guy that did the shooting was the car is. They had left by that point. We got there and uh, we saw these kids uh, that were drinking. Music was playing outside the house. Very modest house. Uh, the roof was made out of blue tarp. Uh, you know, garage door that was probably thrown or discarded from somewhere, was turned into a wall. Um, there, was a, there was a small little radio, uh, kind of a radio, uh, audio system kind of playing some of these cartel songs. One of the, the kids that was shot uh, was still sitting uh, with his beer in his hand, a Tecate, uh, a tecate light beer in his hand, and he, he probably didn't even feel it. That he didn't realize he was shot, probably. He was in the same position that he was probably in when he got shot. Uh, some of the guys on the ground, you could see them trying to get to safety, track their blood as they bled out. Uh, and all the blood kind of pooled into a, uh, into a, a river uh, going down the driveway to the sidewalk. Uh, a mixture of arterial and venal blood. So arterial blood is red, bright red, oxygenated. The, the venal is dark, kind of oozes. So I vividly remember these swirling patterns uh, by seeing the mixture of all this blood coming out of that, uh, that front driveway, kind of oozing out to the street. When we got there, uh, the neighbors felt secure in coming out and seeing what happened. The kids started picking up uh, the, the spent casings from the ground. 
but they they didn't touch these medications that were that were in the blood pools outside. They kind of respected those. Uh, a lot of the older ladies would uh, came out and started chanting the mysteries, uh, Catholic mysteries. Uh, it's a common practice when somebody dies. Uh, I was standing there with a MP5 in one hand and a radio in the other, kind of informing on what I was seeing. And uh, a lady comes up to me and hands me a phone. And uh, she says, please tell this woman what happened here. One of the kids that was shot is her son, so please tell her what happened. And again, another moment in life where I go back into just being underwater, not remembering exactly what happened, just hearing this pain through the phone as I handed it back. Um, now these, these old women were basically chanting these mysteries and some of them were putting candles outside of the house and just covering some of these uh, kids uh, with, uh, with blankets. I couldn't bring myself to tell them not to move anything or to tamper with anything uh, because it might interfere with the evidence gathering. Because to be honest, 99% of all murders in this court were solved. And uh, at the end of this uh, story, Jaramillo, um, uh, an interesting character in my life, uh, shows up and uh, was riding with me that day. Caramigo shows up and tells me like, what do you want to have for breakfast? And uh, we went to have menudo for breakfast, which is, a, I mean, it's menudo is basically stomach lining, <laughs> stew. Uh, sat down and had breakfast and uh, went about my day. Um, shared that story with uh, some of these friends of mine uh, in that circle. It's, it's, it's my narrative, so I didn't think anything of it, but then I looked around the room and I saw a few people crying, uh, being emotionally touched by it, uh, and uh, that was <laughs> that was pretty surreal that I could that I could do that. In words it was pretty surreal for me. That was the first one I shared, and then later on I shared a few others about. Uh, you know, uh, the first time I went home after a violent encounter and, and uh, like, trying to hide the fact that I just went through things. I tried to put my clothing in the, in the washing machine at, at midnight, and my mom came down and I saw, saw what I was doing. And uh, she didn't ask anything about it. She just made me coffee. And we just uh, sat and talked about uh, not that for the whole night uh, until it was morning. Um, you know, sharing some of these things. A lot of the people that I kind of uh, that I that I saw sharing things online, I saw a lot of uh, badassery, uh, uh, warrior, you know, mindset, and just being. A machine and just you know killing it and all that all this type of stuff and 
didn't really see a lot of uh, narrative out there as far as damage and uh, pain and uh, trying to process things. Um, so I took a leap of faith and I shared one of those just to see if I w it would resonate with anybody out there and might help somebody out. And they became really popular after that. One character from Ed's Fever Dreams who has become independently popular among Ed's followers is a person he refers to as Jaramillo, who he just mentioned. That's not his actual name, but Jaramillo was a colleague of Ed's who comes up often in conversations about his career and discussions of good and evil. Ed says Jaramillo is a prime example of how in some stories there are no obvious heroes or villains, no matter how many times he replays them in his mind. You know, first off, that's not his name, and I can't share his name. <laughs> uh, so it's a name that I made up for him. It was a, basically a very shady character. He was in the same office that I work with. Uh, there was obvious signs of his corruption, and he was on the take in, in, uh, in, some, in some aspects. But uh, there's no black and white down there, so you, you would have to... You'd have to associate with some people like that at times. It was part of the job. Uh, but he would, he would always give me a heads up when things were happening. Um, one occasion, there was a, an incident where we found probably somewhere in the vicinity of $3 million in a car that was crossing from the U.S. into, into Baja. When we found the vehicle, I could hear him murmur something to himself that couldn't make it out. Later on, I asked him what he said, and he said, I didn't have enough bullets. Like, what do you mean? I thought I was, I was going to shoot my way out of there and take the money. And I was like, that is horrible. <laughs> I'm, why, why would you do that? You know, uh, Why would you betray me and all the people that are working with you in that way, in that regard? And he uh, responded with, uh, don't take it personal, Led. Uh, I'm doing this uh, for my family. Because I, that, that, I, I wanna, I wanna give my family a better life. So, uh, don't take it personal. You know, people are never against you. They're, they're, they're for themselves. And uh, once you learn that, you'll live longer. It's a complicated thing to, to, to think about, but that's the nature of the, the beast down there. You know, I was going through hell, and God decided not to send me an angel to guide me through it, but a devil. Jaramillo may have been a devil in angel's clothes as far as Ed was concerned. But after he died, Ed still told Jaramillo's daughter something about her dad that turned her father into a hero in her eyes. She grew up with this idea of, her, of, of him being a horrible person and a bad man, corrupt. And, and uh, she had this notion of him where she didn't really want to talk about him, locked him out of her mind. Uh, I felt compelled to reach out to her, and uh, and I wrote her a letter with the kind of the story in there. And uh, everything your dad did did with the purpose of making your life better. And I could see that because Harmia would never buy new clothes for himself. Uh, he would uh, never take care of himself. And uh, he would get paid and somehow not have money the next day. And we all realized it was because he would give all the money to his, uh, his family. 
so he was never about the luxuries himself. I don't think she knew that about his dad. And that uh, small story about him uh, changed her outlook on that and her perspective on her dad. And uh, I think uh, I think I I I, I I gave her forgiveness in, in that regard, as far as who her dad was and what he had to do. Ed has said before that he's the kind of person who prepares others to deal with the ugliness in life. So we asked him, what were some of the moments in his life that were unexpectedly beautiful? Selfless uh, sacrifice. Um, people that are completely, if you look at them and what they did, they're evil, horrible people that have done horrible things. Uh, but in moments, uh, there's a moment of compassion. There's this weird stillness that, that happens in, in people. There was a situation where, that I was in where a big cartel group moved into a town and basically took out most of the people there that were working for the rival cartels. Uh, among them was a, a very well-known evil Sicario guy who went around the small town and basically took all the military-aged males out and uh, started interrogating everybody and torturing everybody to see who was who. Um, we learned about this from some of the townspeople. Um, as he was going through the whole, uh, the, the whole hitting each of the houses uh, situation, he realized that the mothers were gathering around uh, to see what was happening. And this guy's brutal. Uh, his history of violence, he's done, he's done way worse things than this. Uh, he looks around at all the mothers. Uh, he walks over to one of them. He asks, who here is your son? And the mother says, all of them. And he goes to another mother and asks them, who here is your son? The other mother says, all of them. Uh, he goes around a bit and asks the same question and all of them say the same answer. He tells everybody to go back in the trucks and leaves everybody there, even the uh, even the boys. And he basically forgives their lives. <laughs> uh, bravery shown by the mothers, insane bravery, uh, and a little hint of compassion shown by this monster. If Ed Calderon can find the beauty in life after dealing with the traumas that he's experienced, he says you can too. When he reflects on the question of whether or not he spends too much time preparing for the ugly, he answers honestly and says he's lucky to have an anchor. I think it's a sacrifice. And uh, I think I have a lot of karmic uh, debt that I'm trying to pay off. and. Maybe a sick way of thinking about it, but I think it's it's a price I have to pay to keep myself in there, at least for now. And there is a danger to kind of lose yourself in some of that stuff. I think my kid is my anchor. Uh, she represents hope. She represents a future that I'm not, never going to see. Um, yeah, that's the anchor that keeps me from drifting away.
Ed says his daughter is keeping him grounded. But even the sneak reaper needs a hand every once in a while. And he says thankfully he had people in his life who were willing to pull him up from the depths when things were getting bad. If someone in your life, a friend or a loved one, is also getting a little too quiet lately, or if you yourself are starting to feel like you don't have a purpose anymore, like he did, Ed's advice is clear. Be forceful. Uh, be persistent. Don't give up. Uh, kick down the door. Take everything they say to you with the realization that they are not well and it's not personal. And again, they're not against you. They're for themselves. Uh, don't give up on them. Communities out there need help. Uh, community outreach programs, uh, mentorship programs, big brother programs. There's a lot of people out there that need help. <laughs> Those that can't do teach is a saying that I hear a lot. And uh, everybody has a lesson to teach. And I, th I think it's about finding what uh, lessons you have to provide to other people specifically the young people and uh, step outside of the uh, of your baseline and, and realize that there's a whole world world out there that uh, that needs to be bettered somehow we can sleep in the past or wake up in the future and I think a lot of people just need to wake up in the future a little bit over the course of this podcast you probably noticed a special guest in the background while Ed was speaking. Ed made sure that we asked him about the rooster who's been chiming in periodically from the very first episode. He says Ed's story is proof that there is always a future, even for those who are suffering. You've just got to hang around long enough to reach the after party. I'm currently working on a few things uh, south of the border. Uh, and uh, there's a fighting uh, rooster culture uh, in, in Mexico, which is pretty prevalent. Um, so, uh, every, every recording we've had, we've, we have this, uh, this rooster has been singing in the background. Uh, I, I don't, I'm not, I'm not for animal cruelty. I hate it. Uh, but there's certain things culturally that where you have to, I mean, there's just no way I can, you know, call the cops or something on this person you know because it's it was accepted here it's not illegal um but uh it's been through three fights is what i've heard uh and it's now being uh retired and it's going to basically be a mating uh rooster now uh it's pretty scarred up and it's uh, about to just uh start making babies basically um uh, it survived so I, th I thought it was pretty uh, it was pretty fitting and kind of poetic to mention that at the end uh, because uh, there is an afterlife for some people. At the end of every episode throughout our podcast, you've been hearing parts of a Mexican folk song written about Ed, appropriately titled Ed's Manifesto. It's written in a style called the Corrido, a type of traditional song meant to share stories and poems from one generation to another. And thanks to composer and musician Alex Torres, Ed Calderon now has a song of his own. Mirando para atrás no puedo ni creer la vida que viví. Si 
ustedes lo supieran Preguntaran cómo es que puedo dormir En el merito infierno fue donde nací También donde crecí Hablo de ti Juas donde el diablo anda suelto Varias veces lo vi y la primera vez Fue de temprana edad mi mamá me acompañaba Y me tocó perder la inocencia que uno carga de niñez y desde aquí Vea bien recuerdo cómo me cambió la vida Los juguetes en pistolas se convertirían Cómo esqueletor la gente a mí me conocía Clave 02 peleando la paz en la línea Pues así me tocó la vida Soy Herman Plebe Manifesto. Distinguir lo que es falso y lo que es real Por el camino que camine veo lo que otros no pueden mirar Por una monedita chula la gente otra cara se agrega Firme y derecho me mantuve a mí nadie me pudo comprar En vez me fue a pelear Aquel MP5 lo empecé a cargar sin miedo pa' jalar El gatillo por si se necesita yo nunca me rajo Todo lo que tengo me costó mucho trabajo No presumo nada yo también vengo de abajo El manifesto manifesté lo que he soñado No piensen que estoy alardeando Es la verdad Hermano dale un abrazo a mi mamá Sé que del cielo ustedes me cuidan No saben cuánto se les extraña Un día de nuevo los voy a mirar I'm Charles Payne Listen to my Unstoppable Prosperity Podcast So I can get you making money right now Whether stocks are hitting new all-time highs Or in free fall mode Opportunities abound So why are so many potential investors Still sitting on the sidelines? In a new season of my podcast I'm going to get you in the game After 38 years on Wall Street I'm ready to impart some lessons And get you invested in the greatest wealth Generating machine in history Listen anytime, everywhere At foxbusinesspodcast.com Or wherever you listen to your favorite podcast Listen to Fox News Podcast shows ad-free on Fox News Podcast Plus, on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music with your Prime membership, or follow wherever you get your podcasts.